Welcome to our discussion segment on Two Kings. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Let's get started. Welcome back, Joe. You feeling better? I am feeling better. Good. I really appreciate Dan filling in for me that yes. one time. That, yeah, that was, was very, very helpful. That was a good discussion. Yeah. All right. Well, let's dive in here because this was a, it was a really interesting episode. As a fan of biblical history, I especially enjoyed your comparison between what do the history books say, what does the Bible say, so we'll, yeah. get, into, we'll get into some of that. I'm surprised that you haven't asked me yet about the error in the podcast that I have to fix. Is there an error? There is. Which one? I accidentally say 1705 instead of 705. Oh, you do? Yeah. <laughs> I like, remember during the recording that happened a couple of times. It did, and I saved the wrong segment in oh, the recording no. like when we were editing it. And so, <laughs> folks, it was 705. I did say later on 600, not 1600, yeah. but... Yeah, 1705, entirely different time period. Good job, dummy. Thank you. <laughs> I'm surprised I, I didn't get any yeah, emails or anything. I didn't catch that. I did oh. hear some comments from people I know. It'd be like, hey, hey, Joe, great job. It's like, I know, <laughs> I know. The only thing happening during that time was Napoleon, which is what we should talk about, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Have you seen it yet? No, I have not. Okay. All right. Well, you need to see it soon so we can ha- we can do our review. Yes. Probably Agreed. Sometime in January. Yeah. All right, so let's just dive right in here. I don't want to talk too much about like murder porn or anything like that. So I don't want to I don't want to gross our audience out too much, but let's talk about what the Assyrians did. How much do we know from Assyrian records about what they did when they would capture a city, what they would do to the people who they had captured or to the, those whom they had subjugated versus how much comes from outside historical records that are, you know, writing about it either years and decades and centuries later, like Herodotus, because everyone comes to history with a bias. And so how can we separate out primary sources, secondary sources, after so many decades and centuries? Yeah, so even the Assyrians had a bias because they were trying to scare everybody around them. The primary source information came from them. They okay. they recorded a lot of their own history. Now and a lot of it has survived. A lot of it has survived. It's not just in written form. It's also on pottery. It's it's on carvings. We see depictions of their atrocities, the atrocities that they committed, in a lot of uh, artwork that has survived over the thousands of years. So it's one primary source is them, but we have to be careful because. Ancient cultures, many of them, some of them not, but a lot of them love to brag. They oh, yeah. love to to say how awesome they were and how they smote specific people. We and how never they, do that in our society. Not, not at today. all. Not at all. Even the Assyrians, they had a bias. They, yeah. they, you know, had a slant there. So there are other cultures that recorded what they had heard about the Assyrians. And so there's a lot of corroboration between what the Assyrians were saying, what they were doing, and what other people said they were doing. Like they would find the remains of a city and actually see the bodies hanging on the walls who've mm-hmm. been skinned. It was obvious that these people had been skinned alive. Yeah. Uh, so th- those types of things were real. They did happen. And the Assyrians were very verbose about their, their actions, their tactics, and their wins. That's why it's so interesting when you read about the siege of Jerusalem, because they would have bragged about their win. They would have bragged about that. That would have been something that they would have been happy to share. Mm -hmm. Instead, it is very clear the language changes and how they Mm. talk about that siege. Every other city, like we laid waste to them. We destroyed them. We did this and that and this and that. Jerusalem is just some insults and that's it. Huh. There's just there's a difference in the narrative. Yeah. Interesting. 
And let's, yeah, let's jump into exactly that because the Bible presents probably the best known, uh, at least in kind of like popular imagination, account of what happened at Jerusalem uh, during the siege. But there are plenty of modern historians who kind of discount the Bible's historical sure. records without getting into whether or not the Bible is, is historically accurate. What value do you think religious texts bring to a study of history? So I think the first thing is it does add additional context. Yeah. Whether or not you believe that God actually sent an angel to destroy 180,000 troops. Besides that, you still have the context of the culture at the time. This culture wrote about this experience and the siege, and you get it from their perspective. So when we think about the Bible as a historical document, there's the Dead Sea Scrolls, there's, there's many primary source pieces of information that the Bible is derived from that say, okay, this the ancient Jewish culture had an interaction with Sennacherib during this time period. They, he laid siege after destroying all of the cities around the capital. He laid siege to the capital, and then something happened. So even without the faith side of saying, okay, do I believe it or not that that an angel destroyed? No, I do, but if-, yeah, if, if as do I. Yeah, yeah. If, if other people don't, fine. You get the perspective of the culture who's being attacked and how they responded and then how they perceived what the Assyrians were doing versus the Assyrians who wrote about their perspective and saying, it's just kind of a joke. Here's this capital of Judah that we have left for last as our crown jewel that we're going to destroy and make a mockery of them mm -hmm. in the process. Or it wasn't enough for the Assyrians to just conquer the city. They wanted to demoralize the city. They wanted to mock and insult, and they did. They did it in their own language, in Hebrew, mm -hmm. to cause doubt in the population who was hearing these accusations and these comments, they felt like they were gaining ground. Mm -hmm. There was no reason why the something, whatever historians want to call that something, that happened should have happened. It should okay. have ended with that capital being demolished. Mm -hmm. Well, and they had already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel, correct? correct. Yeah. So there's already a sense of fear and terror. You know, you read about some of the historical accounts. Herodotus is, I think, you were the first one who ever told me this years ago, before I had read his histories. He's kind of, kind of exaggerates. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. He, <laughs> not, he, he is not known always, to exaggerate Not always the most reliable. He's yeah. a good Greek. He loves he loves yeah. to <laughs> to heighten the, uh, the uh, Greek wins mm -hmm. and, and achievements. The point is, something did happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And whatever that thing was, it was catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And then, so Sennacherib withdraws. And then how, how much longer did he reign? Decades, because okay. he was actually slaughtered by, by his own children. Was that because of his failure at Jerusalem? That was kind of my next point. Or was, was there something else that happened that caused his sons to rise against him and kill him? I don't think it was because of Jerusalem, okay. because he still had many achievements right. uh, at, at home as a result of his conquest that, where he had succeeded. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't because of that. You know, I made the comment a couple of times in the podcast that ancient kings are easy targets. They were easy targets back then. Too. Yeah. To depose a king. I mean, you can, if a king were to die and his, his sons were off at war, it would be very easy for somebody to declare themselves king, sit on the throne, and suddenly they have the army at their command. That didn't always work out, but that kind of stuff happened all the mm -hmm. time. And then, you know, the, the princes would have to come back and they would have to fight whoever did that. Almost like um, Game of Thrones. Yeah, it's... It, there were some sometimes um, I forget which culture it was, John, and you may know it, but there was an impersonator. The crown king had died, and they actually made somebody else look like him, and he reigned for like three or four weeks. 
Oh, interesting. I'm gonna I'm gonna find out who that was, and I I feel like I'm telling the audience a piece of history, and I can't name the name. Huh. So I will get back to everybody okay. on that. But it's a really interesting story because people were like, "Well, you look kind of like him. Like, <laughs> I guess we're gonna do this." And no yeah, photos back then. Yeah. So who so, knows? So when when the rightful heir came back, like you're not my dad. <laughs> exactly. It's like wait a minute. You're something's wrong here. Yeah. So obviously this imposter was killed, and you know everything was made right. But Interesting. yeah, it's so Man, I, I don't wish think, time travel was real. I would love to go back to those times. It's just and like watch with some popcorn. How, oh, <laughs> yeah. It was not because of Jerusalem. It was more, I think, just because it was an opportunity. Okay, and that starts, if memory serves, the downfall, the downward spiral Correct. of the Assyrian Empire. Correct. I want to talk a little bit about Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar. Not his biography specifically, because I don't know how much you know about him. But just kind of what happened. How does relatively small province, basically, of the empire, Babylonia, how do the Chaldeans who live there take down such a terrifying empire, the largest in history to that time? What happened that brought the Assyrians down and brought the Babylonians or the the Neo-Babylonians, the Chaldeans, to power? Was it that... Was it simply that the Assyrians were outnumbered? Did the Babylonians have allies? Was it better tactics, better weapons? Do, can you give us a kind of a sense of what that was like? It was a combination of things, John, and uh, please chime in here. Okay. <laughs> but there was a strategic advantage where you had an intent to actually expand the empire more so than before. You had new allies in Egypt. On the Babylonian yeah, side. Yes. And so I, I think that there is an inherent rot when we think about ancient kingdoms. A kingdom can be very strong for a period of time. And then internal corruption, overspending, mm-hmm. loss of territory, whatever's happening can push that empire on the downward slope while one other one is rising. And so you have all of the things going on for Babylonia. And then you have you have this up against the natural decline of the Assyrians. Yeah. And I would imagine after ruling so harshly for so many centuries, they've got a lot of people that hate them on their borders. Right. Especially in Babylon, because Sennacherib, even though he tried not to, he did destroy the city. Mm -hmm. Side note, it's interesting to think that Rome exists at this time. It does. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's just a tiny little city on the Tiber. And it's about to get sacked. Like, like for the first time in history, soon after this this time period, it's it's sacked. Mm -hmm. You know, and I only bring that up because when we think about specific time periods in history, we, I, I'll use I statements. I sometimes exclude, oh, this also was around here. It wasn't just like Persia or ancient Greece. This is the time when supposedly the Trojan War was going on. Right. Around this, yeah, around this yeah. time. Yeah. So there's there's so many things in the world happening. We're talking about one little thing, one time period. It's just an interesting thought. Yeah. I think it For is. For sure. Anyway. No, I agree. I remember this was in Sunday school many, many, many decades ago, but I think it was Babylon weren't the walls like wide enough that you could race chariots around the tops after Nebuchadnezzar had rebuilt them and fortified and, and widened? Yeah. 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 I, I don't know why you would, but- no, Well, uh, no, yeah. <laughs> but just like uh, an image of the just the size of these things. Yeah. Maybe not all that tall, but very, very wide as a, uh, as a defensive barrier. There's a great scene in the film Gladiator where they walk into Rome and one of the gladiators sees the Colosseum mm-hmm. and he says, I did not know men could build such things. I would imagine that, I'll call him a peasant, who has never seen a city viewing Babylon for the first time would have thought something similar. By all accounts, it was spectacular. 
I had a, had an experience very similar to that because portions of the original Ishtar Gate in Babylon are now in Berlin at the Pergamon Museum. And I will never forget the first time I walked. You walk down this long corridor and then you just make a turn and like, there it is. Wow. And it is immense. And I remember thinking, I didn't go to the gladiators, but just thinking like, they built this 2,500 years ago. Yeah. No modern technology, nothing, nothing like what we have. And it is absolutely beautiful. And part of it, I'm, I believe, is a reconstruction. But a lot of the bricks are original. They were taken by British and German archaeologists and, and put in that museum. It is spectacular to see. Imagine being born in Babylon, growing up in Babylon, knowing the city and the surrounding area, knowing the splendor of the city or even the squalor of the city mm-hmm. in comparison to the wild that existed outside of the gates. Yeah. You know, you would grow up thinking this is impenetrable. Mm-hmm. Nothing can bring this kingdom down. I often think that way about people who grew up in ancient Rome. Oh, yeah. Like you, they would never have thought Rome would fall. It's an interesting exercise to, to think through and that you have this perception of security and strength and power. And yet you and I are talking about this ancient civilization with an ancient king who after his reign, it there was a major decline in their empire. They uh, met the Persians. Yes. The Persians wanted Babylon. They took it. I don't know. I don't really have any follow-up other than yeah. I, I often will think that way. It's like this person in history or this group in history had no idea what was about to happen. We did an episode of season three or maybe four season four, where we talked about the downfall of Rome and, and the transition to the what, what was called the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. And yeah, seeing the bones of Roman civilization all across Europe and thinking, and we couldn't build anything like this today. Yeah. What happened? I, I think it was the aqueduct and the mud hut. Yes. That, that, yeah. That's what it was. Imagine mm-hmm. what we call the quote, Dark Ages. You walk out of your mud hut and there's a remnants of an aqueduct yeah. towering over you. It's like, what went wrong? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what, what happened? Yeah. Why we learn from history, folks. Yes. Let's talk about what Nebuchadnezzar did to Jerusalem. And I want to I want to start with some an eyewitness from history mentioned in the Bible, also mentioned in extra biblical sources, the prophet Jeremiah. Yeah. What did he witness and how did it shape his writings that have survived down to today? The prophet Jeremiah, who was in prison when Jerusalem fell, and he was freed by the invading forces. So the Babylonians offered him safe passage to Babylon. He preferred to stay there because not all the people were taken. And do you know how, if at all, that shaped his writings and, and the later prophecies that are, that are found in Scripture? It was a fulfillment of what God said he was going to do. Right. And so I think that, that obviously shaped it. I think that there was there was also a contrast, the fact that there was an out. There was a call to repentance well before that prophecy came true. The Jewish people didn't take it at the time. And so I think when you read his later writings, you see that the contrast. Okay, so like, there was a change. It's been a while since I've read Jeremiah. There was a change in kind of the tone or the— It wasn't a change. It was an affirmation. Like okay. God, God said that he would destroy—and yeah. I'm paraphrasing, obviously— but God keeps his word. Yeah. God said, repent. They said, we won't. He said, okay, well, here's the consequence. Yeah. A great passage in chapter 17 of Jeremiah. He just got done going through the first four verses in this chapter. He's talking about what, what happened back and forth, saying, as an example, Judas' sin is engraved by an iron tool. So he's talking about that sin. And then he talks about kind of the contrast. Chapter 17 of Jeremiah, starting at verse 5, cursed is the person who trusts in mankind. He makes human flesh his strength, and his heart turns away from the Lord. 
He will be like a juniper planted in the Arabah. He cannot see when good comes, but dwells in the parched places in the wilderness, in the salt land where no one lives. But the person who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is indeed in the Lord, is blessed. He will be like the tree planted by the water. It sends its roots out into the stream. It does not fear when heat comes, and its foliage remains green. It will not worry in a year of drought or cease producing fruit. So you have the contrast of what happens when we trust in man, Judah trusted in man, Mm -hmm. trusted in Egypt, trusted in their own devices, ignored God. The verse that really stands out, they cannot see when good comes. So they're so lost that if something wonderful happens, they can't tell the difference. Versus somebody who puts their trust in the Lord. It does not say in this verse that you're only going to experience good things. Yeah. It says, even though in drought, even though in these in these challenges, if your trust is in the Lord, it's still going to produce fruit. And so that's that's an ongoing theme. So two-part question to kind of close this out. This has been a great discussion. I've really enjoyed. I really enjoyed this episode. When we look at leaders in the past, like Sennacherib and Nebuchadnezzar, and, and then we look at more clear-cut villains in history, someone like Nero or Hitler, we always bring our own moral framework to any, you know, to the table when we're, when we're thinking about them. What would you say is kind of the line between intentions being one thing and actions being another? The intentions were good, but the actions were evil. And a clear-cut statement that, listen, the intentions don't matter. This was evil. And then the follow-up, how can we guard against moral relativism as, like you said in the podcast, we leave it to the audience? How can they be aware of moral relativism and not say, well, evil doesn't really exist. It's based on context. It's based on morals of a certain era. Where's the line and how do we avoid that sense of moral relativism? There is a right and wrong. When I see, unfortunately, on an Instagram feed, a news story about teenagers beating up an old person, you get that sense in your gut, oh my gosh, this is shocking. The reason why it's shocking is because it's wrong. It's evil. It's uh, cowardly. It's adolescent. It's stupid. It's evil. There needs to be a consequence that these individuals responsible for that, that kind of crime need to face, hopefully, for their reform mm-hmm. so that they can realize what I did was evil and therefore... I should not do it again. And by the way, old person, I'm very sorry. So there needs to be a consequence. And that consequence is the result of there being a system of laws that says this is wrong. And that system of laws in the United States is derived almost entirely from the natural rights philosophy that we talked about in our opener, that you, John, have a right to life. Okay. What does that mean? It, <laughs> it means that you have the right to be alive. I cannot take that from you. We have a right to property. The best example I can think of that in nature is, I think what we've talked about on a past podcast, an ant builds an ant hill. That is his property. That is their property. It is assumed that that is theirs. No one gave it to them. If somebody were to break into my house, that's a violation of my natural right to property. Therefore, that action is evil. So that's one framework. Regardless if it's from a natural rights position or Judeo-Christian position, which is where I would operate from, and you would as well, there is a sense of conscience that we have that will tell us murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, beating up an old person is wrong. So the moral framework that you're asking about does exist, and it's not relative, and it's not based on somebody's whim. We understand that burning down a city in protest is wrong. The protest is not wrong. Having a rally is not wrong. That's actually an encouraged thing to do. But conducting violent acts as a result, destroying property, doing anything that would violate somebody else's right is an evil act. 
It's a very long way of saying it's not relative and there is an absolute. What we don't want to do is talk about history and tell our audience what to think. We want to present history, one, we want to show you the facts, and two, we hopefully have been driving this home that with a knowledge of history comes context. Context is very, very powerful. No, this is not the worst time in history. If you don't know history, then you don't have anything to compare it to. But right now, what we're experiencing is not great. There's a lot of problems. It is in no way as bad as it has been. Now, does that make everything great? No, but it, it does allow you to have the context, which gives perspective. And that perspective is incredibly helpful. It also causes you to want to read more history and hear more of our podcast. It really was just a reminder to our audience that we're presenting these facts of history, these variety of opinions about specific events based on historical things that occurred, and we want you to think about it. We want you to think about it beyond what we're just telling you. We're here to present history to you, our audience, and we want to talk to you about it, and we want you to take it and have a love for history to learn more. Thank you for joining us in our discussion of Two King. I'm John Streeter. And I'm Joe Parker. Be sure to leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. It really does help. Next week, we will have a special Christmas episode for you. Then we'll be taking the first week of January off. So we will see you once again next year.